Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. We hope that you're having a very good holiday season. Uh, In this episode, we have the first part of a two-part Christmas special that we did, I think it was last year, uh, for this podcast, and we're rebroadcasting it now because tis the season. So we hope you enjoy uh, this part one, and then we'll be releasing part two very shortly. So enjoy. Thanks. Welcome to OnScript's Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study slash biblicalworld. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. We have a very special Christmas episode for you here. This is part one of a two-part Christmas episode. I'm not sure if we'll get the second one out before Christmas, but if not, it'll be out soon after Christmas. And we hope you have a wonderful Christmas if you're celebrating, and we'll catch you in the new year or even sooner with part two of this. Hope you enjoy it, and thanks so much for all your support over this year. Welcome back, on script Biblical World listeners. Uh, today, I am joined by Kyle Keimer. I am Chris McKinney, your host. Uh, and today, Kyle and I will be discussing something of abiding interest to both of us, um, the archaeology of Christmas. We could have gone with the archaeology of Advent, which would have been a nice alliteration. Uh, we'll, we'll stick with the archaeology of Christmas. And this is going to probably be part one of two or three. We'll see how far it goes. But we're excited to talk about several archaeological and geographical, and I would even say some historical aspects that are behind the Christmas event. Yeah, that's right, Chris. And I, I, this is, as you said, this is, I think, a topic that we both are just passionate about. And, you know, I haven't really seen any... um, kind of comprehensive discussions of the archaeology that kind of pulls it together. And so while, while we're not claiming that this is going to be comprehensive, I think it's a first step towards hopefully pulling together a lot of the disparate resources that are out there about the archaeology of, say, Nazareth and Bethlehem, two really significant and important sites, but but uh, sites where the archaeology is often uh, published or the results are published in Italian or another language that that you know, the English most English speakers don't have access to and so I think today hopefully we'll we'll bring something new to the people yeah I agree and I, I mean for both of us and really anyone who has grown up uh, celebrating Christmas and particularly a uh, a religious setting doing nativity plays and and I remember all kinds of things at the church that I grew up in, and uh, even until today, you see uh, the plays, and there's always these set pieces, uh, like the the innkeeper, uh, like uh, Mary and Joseph, always on a donkey, just rounding the top of the hill um, as they're leaving near Jerusalem, making their way to Bethlehem. Maybe the water's breaking along the way. They're knocking the doors down looking for an inn. Every Motel 6 in Bethlehem is, is full with, with no vacancy. Um, and of course, they go and find the stable, and it's all done very herky-jerky, hurriedly, and it's got all of this um, urgency to it. 
Um, and in reality, as we'll see, uh, none of that is actually <laughs> in Luke 2 or Matthew 2. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of, uh, neither one of us want to be Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, and throw, throw, uh, damp water or, hard, you know, cold water on this, uh, on the, the myths that are part of the Christmas story. Um, but at the same time, we want to understand the text in its original context and then also add these additional archaeological set pieces. You know, what was actually there in Bethlehem and Nazareth? Who were the characters that are mentioned, such as Herod the Great and others? What's the historical background? Uh, and I think what you find by actually digging into what the text actually says and then the historical background and geographical background is you get something that is just as interesting and actually set more in the the real world than some of the stuff that we often see as part of our uh, mythological tellings of Christmas. Yeah, those are all really great points, Chris. And I would just second all of that. And, you know, and, and this has been one of the goals in in this podcast is as we've delved into various topics is that we really want to deal um, with the material in a responsible, critical way. And we want to pull out and discern, if we can, between traditions and traditions. There's those traditions that really go back to early days and have a really good foundation. And then there are the other traditions. And so, again, when we're dealing particularly with the life of Jesus, we'll see that there's, you know, we've got everything on both ends of the spectrum and everything in between. And so I think it's really important to to look at this and evaluate. And it's, again, as you said, it's not to kind of, um, kind of be Ebenezer Scrooge, but it is to bring us into a more appropriate kind of um, way of thinking about and even visualizing what was going on. And I say all this, our audience can't see me, but I'm actually dressed like a shepherd right now just to get into and into the mood. So. <laughs> and I'm the innkeeper who's yeah, there we go. mythological. <laughs> <laughs> right. So Kyle, why don't you tell us a little bit about the historical background um, as we get into the early Roman period, I, I think many uh, Christians and many people who are interested in the Christmas story, they often miss the intertestamental period um, as a fertile ground for imagination, as a fertile ground for major changes that are happening to Judea and Galilee and Samaria um, over the course of the end of the Old Testament canon, the Hebrew Bible, and the beginning of the New Testament, many things have happened uh, that have a direct influence about questions of what is a Messiah? Uh, what does it mean to be the king of the Jews? What does it mean that um, this, this, there will be a Savior born in Bethlehem? And these are all in, obviously in the background, but if you don't pay close attention to uh, what's happening between, let's say, 400 BCE to uh, the time of Jesus, which is maybe 4 BC. It's a bit of a debate as to when we have the birth of Jesus. You miss out a lot on what's what's actually happening. What are, what are the uh, the Jews living in Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Nazareth? What are they expecting uh, in terms of a, a king? Is it, some, is it someone that looks just like King David or Solomon? Is it uh, a suffering servant, like we see in Isaiah? Is it all of these? Uh, and is there additional elements that we've missed because we often don't read the Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha or Josephus that provide these details? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a, a lot of good stuff, and I'm going to try and present the most concise, um, up-to-date, kind of bring us up to speed as I can while hitting on all the, the key things. Um, so we'll start kind of in the, the 4th century with the coming of the Greeks, and um, Alexander the Great comes, he conquers pretty much the known world, then he dies, and his kingdom is divided up, and the kind of two of his generals that take over uh, the Levant and kind of battle between each other and their dynasties for the next 150 years or so are the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucids in uh, Syria and Mesopotamia. And really it's this, what comes with the Greek world is this whole idea of Hellenization. And it's a, it's a new way of thinking about and being in the world it's as opposed to the ancient Near Eastern concept. And the ancient Near Eastern concept is there is a God or there are gods and they are supreme, we're not those gods, and we're at the the whim of them. And perhaps, you know, in Judaism, there's a loving, benevolent God, and, you know, he wants to have a relationship. In other ancient, ancient Near Eastern religions, though, that's that element isn't there. But in the Hellenistic world, it you see the high, the highlighting of kind of mental prowess of man, that the gods are there, and they have this full pantheon of, of deities, but really rational thinking, um, men are the ones who kind of make their world and are the pinnacle. And so there's a clear shift in priority of who is most significant, who is in kind of in control. And this is really causes a conflict um, within Judaism. There are some Drew, Jews that adopt a Hellenistic worldview. There are some that don't. And this leads to a bifurcation. Then as we move into the second century, we see the rise of the Hasmonean dynasty. And if you want to know a little bit more about this, I recommend our listeners go back and listen to the episode we did with Andrew Berlin, where we talk about some, some elements of the Hasmonean dynasty. And from the second and first centuries BC, this native Jewish dynasty uh, basically has an autonomous kingdom in the shadow of these larger kind of imperial Greek powers, if you will, trying to carve out their own uh, own space. But within um, the Hasmonean family, there's also pro-Hellenistic ideology and maybe to a lesser degree, you know, non-Hellenistic ideology. And the Hasmoneans then add to further bifurcation within Jewish society. And you see the development of a number of different Jewish sects in this time, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes. I mean, they, they could have begun earlier. It's just our earliest record. It comes from Josephus. And so he kind of puts them probably in this, this situation. So by the time we get to the kind of mid to late first century, the Hasmoneans ultimately are going to be replaced by the Romans who come in and say, guess what? Rome's here. We're in control now. And this can we, can we stop you there for just a second, Kyle? Yeah, just 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 add a, a quick comment. I, I like where you're going with this, but I'll just re remind our listeners, uh, and and I thank you for reminding them back to the the episode we did with Andrea Berlin, that even the Hasmoneans, uh, led initially by Judah the Hammer, and and as we move on to the various Hasmonean kings, they saw themselves in the tradition of David and Solomon. They saw themselves as following the uh, Old Testament historical pattern of carving out for themselves a kingdom. They were priest kings also in, in Jerusalem. And that's another aspect that is important to remember is that for them, the, the story of Israel's domination or growth uh, and, and establishment of a kingdom from Dan to Beersheba and beyond was a critical component of defining who they were as uh, as territorial 
kings against the, the hated enemy or against the other, let's call them, uh, with, with, the, with the Greek empire. And so as we move into this next period and with all these sects uh, that, that Kyle mentioned, that's very much on the table when we think about kingship and kingdom. Yeah, great point, Chris. Great. Thanks for adding that. Um, and just, just to kind of go back and touch a little bit on these sects, uh, we, we know of uh, of these from Josephus, but we also have the Dead Sea Scrolls, which most, most scholars, I think, would assign the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, the sectarian literature, to the Essenes at this point in time, though there's always been a debate about that. And so we get this view about what this Messiah and what kingship and priesthood should look like. And clearly, the group that's living at Qumran, where the Sea Scrolls were found, are not a big fan of what's happening in Jerusalem with the priesthood, with the the kind of kingship, the leadership. And so, when we look at Judaism in this Hellenistic and into the Roman period, into the days of Jesus, really it's, you know, Hellenism, or I'm sorry, Judaisms. There, there are a number of different forms. There are core tenets that they all kind of I would say agree on, but then each has its own interpretation of a number of other topics. Is there an afterlife? Yes or no? Depends if you're a Pharisee or a Sadducee. Um, and so this is mirrored what we see, I would say, even to a certain degree in Judaism today, between Orthodox, Reformed, but more so in Christianity, the different denominations. Is that there's core tenets of belief that I think most Christians would agree upon, but then there's the differences between Methodists and Lutherans and uh, Episcopalians and so on and so forth, and it's just become fragmented for any number of reasons. And, and I would just add to that point, one of the really interesting things that you can see across the history of religion, uh, and if we just focus on Judaism and Christianity, is often the most uh, heated exchanges actually happen in an intramural context. In other words, um, the debates, okay, there's debates between Essenes and Sadducees and Pharisees, but oftentimes there are factions within the Sadducees or factions within the Pharisees, just as there are factions between one wing of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, and another part of the Southern Baptist Convention and, and whatever denomination you want to throw out. And, and it's actually determining where those groups are in terms of their bigger thought, but then where the battle lines are being drawn over these specific issues. And if we think about the larger context of the Gospels, um, and as we look ahead to where Jesus is going to end up in the telling of the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John, it's a real question as to where he ends up on the spectrum, or if he even is on the spectrum. Uh, so in any case, there's a lot here that is worthwhile that Kyle is, is, is pointing us to, and these sources, especially the Dead Sea Scrolls, Josephus, we could add also some pseudepigraphal literature, uh, which touches on some of these aspects as well. And it's it's just something that many people are not aware of. They encounter these these characters, these groups in the New Testament, but there's this background material that is so important that's forming precisely in the centuries before the birth of Jesus. Yeah, and and one of these is, as, as you kind of um, prompted the question to begin with, is this idea of, of the Messiah. And we have, uh, you know, debatably, at least a couple different ideas of what the Messiah is going to be or who he's going to be. Is he going to be a priestly Messiah? Is he going to be a kingly Messiah? And you know, we don't have a smoking gun answer because probably depending on the different Jewish group you're talking to, you're going to have a different idea of what the actual expectation of this Messiah is. And there's going to be a discussion there. And there's also going to be a discussion about, you know, what 
what kingship looks like. What a, what a, a king, if you are expecting a kind of kingly military, um, or sorry, a kingly messiah, is he a military leader? Is he something else? I mean, there's, there's this element that often gets wrapped into the messiahs. He's going to be a leader like David. He's going to be a military conqueror. He's going to reestablish this autonomous Jewish nation and so on and so forth. And so where does this imagery come from? Well, it's been building for a long time, coming from, you know, following the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians in the the 6th century. It already starts to percolate down of these expectations of of what's going to happen now, and what has happened to the line of David, what has happened to this promise to David, that there's going to be a messiah, a leader, an anointed one, right, is what uh, Mashiach means. And when is this going to take place? And we have to view all of this through the lens of what's taking place in the Hellenistic and Roman period, right? Here we have these major empires coming in, and it frames the worldview and interacts with the worldview of the Jews in the 4th, 3rd, 2nd, 1st centuries uh, BC, so that what they think of when they see a king is a Hellenistic model. And when we move into the Roman period and we see the Romans take over Ultimately, they're going to um, hire their their man, Herod, who becomes Herod the Great. He basically models himself probably on a Hellenistic model of kingship as well. And so it's, this is what the people are seeing. You know, a king is someone mighty. He, he builds things. He is all powerful. He does whatever he wants. He campaigns. He conquers. And then all of a sudden you have the kind of New Testament version of, of Jesus and the claims there of, of him being the Messiah and stepping into this. And it's not really what anyone is thinking about. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't know that there's a, a, a divide there unless you have this broader context leading up to uh, the birth narratives in the Gospels. Yeah, I, I think there's so many important statements you make there that we can unpack, and I know we'll talk about some of them here. I just have a few uh, quick comments. One is, as we're, as we're moving towards and thinking about archaeology, I am always amazed, uh, despite how many times I've uh, been in Israel, lived in Israel, um, that when you go, uh, one of your lasting impressions, if you didn't know going in, is how big of an impact Herod the Great had upon the, the the landscape of Israel, whether we're talking about the Temple Mount, his palace, Herodian, Caesarea, Samaria, uh, and just on and on down the list as you go. It If you were to make a list of the top 10 sites in, in Israel to visit for tourists, he's probably got five or six of those uh, on that list. And so it's an enduring type of kingship. But as you as you mentioned, it's not necessarily the type of kingship that is um, exactly reflected in uh, in Jewish thought. Although uh, we do, of course, have um, kings, which talks about Solomon and his messianic role, which is clearly associated with wealth and prestige and and building projects. And where David might kind of be more of a a warrior king, where Herod, of course, wasn't a warrior king. The Hasmoneans are kind of somewhere in between as warriors and also builders. Uh, in fact, most of what Herod does is uh, is building projects um, instead of instead of campaigns. Now, one other point that I think is is well worth mentioning that often um, students of the New Testament don't get is um, going in the same time period as this is not only do we have um, the, the birth of, you know, regardless of how one feels about their 
his theological claims, uh, the birth of Jesus and his life would change world history uh, without a doubt. But at precisely the same time, we have uh, Augustus Caesar, who is has a good news proclamation going out to the world that he is Caesar. Now, of course, not not called king, but he has this good news proclamation going out. And that is clearly contrasted as we open up to Luke 2 and, and read those lines, you know, just as Linus does in the Charlie Brown Christmas <laughs> story. We haven't watched it which, yet this year. Which I, I was actually just reading it to my, my kids last night. So they were they were happy. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. But but my, my point is here is what does Augustus Caesar do? Yeah, he fights some battles. He wins the great battle of Actium some 25 years before the birth of Jesus, defeating Mark Antony and establishing himself as the, the one true emperor of, of Rome. But we also have him doing all kinds of massive building projects. If you visit Rome, if you visit other parts of the empire, it's a period marked by an absolute flourishing of architecture and, and, and buildings that would be unsurpassed for, for, for generation, perhaps never surpassed. And, and he wanted to embed that type of ideology in terms of his power uh, among, among his people, and he did. And we're still talking about him until today. But there's also a literary component. Uh, when we look at the writing of the Roman Empire, um, of course, we can read all kinds of histories and so on. But the Aeneid from, from Virgil, which is set in essentially establishing kind of an Old Testament style story of the fall of Troy. And then as you follow the character Aeneas, as he makes his way uh, to Rome, there's all kinds of this mixed in mythology. It's the backdrop to everything that's culminating in the character of Augustus Caesar, you know, Octavian, as he becomes this emperor. And so even if you look at the, if you could, even if you compare what we have in the birth of Jesus to the birth of Augustus Caesar um, in terms of the, the ideas of kingship, which are, are, are similar and dissimilar. There's some very interesting points of, of contact um, in terms of their, their power and function that you can talk about from a literary perspective, but you could also talk about from an archaeological perspective. Um, as we all know, um, even though he was a, a tecton, a craftsman, uh, we don't know of any great buildings that that jesus left while he was on earth um <laughs> that, that, that as far as i've known i mean <laughs> if he would have built one um there would have been you know a lot of people wanting to find it but but caesar left many buildings caesar augustus left many buildings and so did herod and so this is not a you know an obscure point it's a point that when a reader of luke chapter 2 or Matthew chapter two and thought of, they read the name Herod the Great or read the name Caesar Augustus, they immediately picked up and said, oh, this is like, you know, the most important person ever. Um, and this is the comparison and really a contrast between these two, these two figures. Yeah. No, I, that's, that's great stuff, Chris. And yeah, it, it always, I, I, I don't, it doesn't surprise me, but it, it always, I just love thinking about the biblical text and the biblical authors and the way that they take their context and they they weave their message in and oftentimes it is taking what is common what is well known and then tweaking it you know a little bit and saying you know what this is what everybody kind of thinks but here's what we here's what we think here's what you know we understand it, the the way to be and you know you're absolutely right i mean you take what is known throughout the roman world this is again the the empire of empires you know controlling everything 
And then you have this claim of, well, maybe not, maybe Augustus isn't actually the, the all-powerful king. Right. And, and I think that's such a great point and so important to realize. And this gets to why I think this type of episode is so crucial, because with the archaeology that has been exposed in the last century in the landscapes of both Rome and, and the, the vicinity of Jerusalem and, and throughout, throughout Israel, we can make these points. But if we also focus on the military aspect that, that you talked about with Caesar Augustus and perhaps a little bit with Herod the Great and these symbols of, uh, of power that they had. So architecture, major building projects, these were prestige, but they were also meant to show the, the, the domination and power of, of Rome itself, which was not an idle threat. It was backed up with, with, a, with a powerful uh, military force. And so if that's existing you know, in Jerusalem, um, and that's existing in the larger Roman world. And of course, we can always think of the events that are uh, not that far on the historical horizon when Rome is going to defeat uh, Jerusalem and, and, and squash the Judean rebellion. It's very important that when we grasp um, in when, 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 when Jesus is about to be born, when we have in particular in Luke 1 and 2, these appearances of Gabriel as an angel, it's not just some rosy colored uh, scene where you have, you know, a, a naked baby cherub appearing to these guys. I mean, this is literally the most powerful being in existence in the created order, according to the biblical description. And it's one guy to those shepherds. And uh, to quote again, Luke 2 with, you know, with Linus, you know, they were sore afraid with one guy. And after he gives them the sign, he says, there was, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts. I mean, they were out of their minds afraid. And so when we read or sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and we talk about the King of Angels, that doesn't mean that Jesus has a host of, of naked babies with wings. This is literally a more powerful force than has ever been put together in the conception of the biblical authors that is undefeatable, uh, even in the might of the great Roman military prowess. And that's the, that's the point, is you're supposed to see that at the beginning of this story and say, man, what's going to happen next? And the answer is, it's complicated and even better than you imagine. I think maybe I'll, I'll we'll jump into the archaeology of Nazareth then, because one of the things that I, I, I love that it kind of builds on what you're saying there is that there's always, you know, what, what we can get from the Bible is that God, I think, has a really good sense of humor, and he'll choose the lesser son to rise to power, the weaker individual to do something significant, the insignificant sites such as Shiloh or Jerusalem to become the epicenter of kind of experiencing God. And in, in, you know, today, Jerusalem, we know, is the epicenter of, of a lot of different things. And, it, you know, it, it's taking what we see and what is strong in the physical and flipping it on its head. And I think you really see that when we look at the the two kind of key sites of Christmas, and that's Nazareth and Bethlehem. And so maybe we'll, we'll jump right into looking at what we what we actually know about um, these two sites. Sound good? Sounds good to me. All right. Uh, well, let's start with Nazareth. Uh, there's been um, work that has been going on in Nazareth that probably isn't all that widely advertised, as far as as far as I'm concerned. And so. 
what we know is that the, these two sites have largely been excavated traditionally by uh, Franciscan priests. They have uh, you know, a base in Jerusalem, and they've been a force in the archaeology of Israel since the kind of inception of the modern state of Israel. And they've excavated a number of key sites, Qumran, Nazareth, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, um, you name it, they, they are there. Pernim, yeah. Capernaum, exactly. The, the problem, of course, for many people is that all their publications, when they do publish things, are in Italian. And so they're not all that widely recognized unless you have, unless you speak Italian or you can access some of those resources. And it's only in recent times that some of the um, work that's being done in both these sites is appearing in English language, um, making it accessible probably for most of the people listening to this. Um, and this is, I think, uh, a really good thing. And I'll, I'll mention a guy by the name of, of Ken Dark, who's done some work in Nazareth in particular, and he has two volumes out now on some of the excavations that have been done there. And what we can say about Nazareth is that it was basically um, a small village in the first century BC, and typical kind of small houses, not a whole lot of... Um, fancy frilly things. And the reason um, that I want to, we'll go into some of the specific details here in just a second, but I want to juxtapose Nazareth with the nearby site of Sepphoris. And perhaps many of our listeners are familiar with the site of Sepphoris. This is kind of the um, main site in the lower Galilee. And it's uh, cosmopolitan. It's a kind of Greco-Roman uh, city, if you will. And it's only a few miles away from Nazareth. And basically, Nazareth sits in the shadow of this. And again, we need to contextualize Jesus's not only birth, but then early life growing up in this context as well, that there's a conflict not only between kind of ideological conceptions of who the Messiah is, what a king is, so on and so forth that we've been talking about, but also uh, cultural norms between Greco-Roman experience and Jewish experience. And we see this um, in the Galilee in particular because you have this mixing of of nations there. You see it less in, in Judea because it's largely Jewish there. Um, but there is this kind of competing culture wars, if you will, at this time period. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good introduction to this this larger question. It's I think it's really interesting how you draw attention to to Nazareth and Sepphoris. Of course, readers of the New Testament will be well aware of the name Nazareth, but they've probably never heard unless they've been to Sepphoris of the city because it's not mentioned. And that's really one of the great ironies of the of the Gospels is that the two sites that are most well known in the Gospels in Galilee are Nazareth and Capernaum. And yet these sites are very small and fairly insignificant, Nazareth more so than Capernaum. And they're right beside massive cities that had Herodian kings uh, building them and setting them up. In the case of Nazareth, it's Sepphoris. In the case of Capernaum, it's Tiberias. And we only get the name Tiberias not as a city, uh, but as the lake of Tiberias in the Gospels. I always am just struck by that, particularly when you spend the night on the Sea of Galilee and look over at the, the bright lights of Tiberias as it's a fairly large town today. And for Jesus to have spent two and a half uh, some odd years in the vicinity of Tiberias and never visit it, it it's it's not just odd, it's purposeful that there's not a connection. And, you, and the same thing can be said for 
Sepphoris that there's a um, you know kind of a disconnect between the big city and the Jewish towns that are surrounding it. Now, one other thing I, I would like to just add before Kyle leads us through the archaeology of Nazareth um, is is thinking back also to the earlier episode about why Jews are in Galilee in the first place. And we can point specifically to the conflicts that took place in the Hasmonean period where we have this Jewish expansion and these initial settlements um, in places like Nazareth and others that would have been uh, Jewish, would have had synagogues, would have had uh, mikvaot or ritual baths. That's most likely when these settlement waves occurred in the time of the Hasmoneans in the second century and as we continue through into the first century BC. But for them and for those uh, Jews living in Galilee, it wasn't just uh, a political dynamic of that was contemporary, as we see revealed in the story of, of, of Jesus and Nazareth in both Matthew and Luke, we see that it's dynamically related to the events that would happen, that had happened there in the Old Testament. We have references to Elijah and lepers and Elisha and the woman raising her son, you know, Jesus raising the dead on the same mountain that Elisha does it. Uh, we have um, this, this context in, in Matthew's gospel, which talk about, you know, the region of the valley of the shadow of death, you know, Galilee of the Gentiles. And it's this long memory, some 700 plus years old by this point from the prophet Isaiah that's talking about the destruction by Tiglath-Pileser III that, that essentially wiped out Israelite occupation of this area. These were memories. These were texts that had become sacred, and the sacred memory of those informed those living there at the time, and it's going to inform much of Jesus's memory. One last point on this. I always like to point out that this area of Nazareth is directly across from the hometown of Jonah the prophet. So even though Nazareth itself is not a um, prominent Old Testament site, it's very interesting that we have a Galilean prophet um, who is uh, a couple stone throws away, maybe a couple Tom Brady stone throws away, uh, between Nazareth and Gath Heifer, where, where Jonah um, was was called during the, the reign of Jeroboam II. And if we think about the story of Jonah, of course, it plays a, a major role in the Old Testament. And I would even point out specific events that happen in the Gospels, most notably the calming of the sea. But I'll just point out that Jesus says, no sign shall be given you but the sign of Jonah, you know, that the Son of Man will spend three days in the depths of the earth. And so if we think about the typology or if we think about the fertile ground of Old Testament figures and events and places, it is an unlikely place to be born. And yet, despite its unlikely character, we see that the messianic presentation of Jesus touches on many of these things. The problem for most readers is they're not aware of the geography that exists, and they're often not aware of the Old Testament background. And then thirdly, the New Testament authors aren't always explicit. We like it when Matthew says that it be fulfilled X, Y, Z, but sometimes it's the implied um, geographical background that um, he wants us to delve into, and his readers would have would have picked up on it. Uh, so with that, with that said, we could spend a lot of time on talking about all those different <laughs> things. But let's get back to 
Well, here, let me, let me add one last thing. Cause I think it, go ahead, go ahead. It, it goes, it goes right with that. And this is something one of my old teachers, Jim Monson, you know, told me, and you just, you think about the passage where it says after Mary gets the, this, you know, birth annunciation to her and the text says, and I don't have the specific quote in my mind, something like she treasured it in her heart or she contemplated it. And you know, it, it is, you think about where she is. She's in Nazareth. She's looking out over the Jezreel Valley. And this is where so many of these international events across the span of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible have taken place. And so probably she's, I mean, I can only imagine trying to be in her, her footsteps, you know, number one, hearing this message, you're like, um, you're going to give birth to this, this child, but then replaying perhaps some of the significance, the history of your people in that context, being right there and, and wondering what it all means. Right. And, and that should inform a Christmas carol like, Mary, did you know? <laughs> where, where was Mary? Right. I mean, she, she, she's picking up on these things. I think it's a, I think it's a great point, you know, with, I love that line. And it's, it's like Luke citing his sources. This is his uh, SBL or Chicago <laughs> or Turabian formatting. And I'm citing my sources, Theophilus, pay attention. <laughs> All right. Well, let's yeah. So let's turn to the archaeology then. So when we look at Nazareth, uh, as with a number of sites in in Israel today, one of the challenges that we have to work with is that it's a living city, and it has been pretty much since you know Jesus's day, which means that it's really difficult to excavate there and to get a good sense of the the ancient settlement. What did Nazareth look like in the Roman period? And this has led to some some non-scholars claiming that Nazareth wasn't even occupied in this time period and therefore that the Gospels made it all up, which is just patently absurd because we have we do have plenty of archaeology. It's just that it comes when you do um, salvage excavations. Sometimes it's within buildings, other times it's within the properties. Some, every now and then you get an open area where you can excavate. And no matter whether we're looking at tombs or even excavating under the Church of the Annunciation, which is um, the church built over the traditional location where um, Gabriel tells Mary she's going to have a baby, um, across the street as well, there's been some excavations around the, the bend, so to speak, uh, to, the, to the west. There's been excavations in Nazareth Village. No matter where uh, you've excavated in the kind of heart of of modern Nazareth, you end up finding Roman period remains. And you even have Roman period houses, you have some tombs, you even have Hellenistic material as well. And so we know that Nazareth is already a settlement, at least by the late Hellenistic period. So into the second century kind of BC, and is going to continue probably at least until the second century AD, based on the pottery that has been recovered. And the whole history of excavating in, in Nazareth is um, really, really fascinating because some of the earliest excavations actually took place back in the 1800s. And there's a convent there, the Sisters of Nazareth convent, that is built over what has traditionally been interpreted as Jesus's childhood home. And so excavations were done back in the 1880s. And what you see is this kind of typical um, Galilean home built over and into uh, the the bedrock itself, and it looks like the originally this was an area of a quarry, and there were even some tombs there. But then they were put out of use, and then the house was built built over top of it. And when you is this is one of the the works that Ken Dark has actually kind of published. He's published these excavations and makes the case that the tradition here goes back uh, 
quite early and that this could be one of those places where there's good good indications that the tradition is is accurate so maybe maybe we actually have excavated the actual childhood home of Jesus but it just hasn't been been advertised it's not one of those um, places I think that probably most tours would go to yeah I think that's I think that's that's fair to say and I really appreciate the way Ken Dark has framed a lot of these arguments I mean um, I, I think that what he's found is is really interesting and has a lot going for it. But I think he's done a good job in, in being fair with the evidence and not trying to claim too much. And anytime we, we talk about finding specific buildings or specific aspects, we, we as scholars and as people in general public need to understand that there's always going to be a level of uncertainty about a definitive uh, identification um, for those who, who have been to Nazareth and those who haven't, most of the, the, t- t- the tourists that visit the site, they visit uh, a large church, which is modern, but it's built over a crusader church and a late Byzantine church in the vicinity. It's called the, the Church of the Annunciation. And there, as Kyle alluded to, um, there are ruins in that vicinity um, but that's not exactly where this recent church has been, uh, uh, this recent area has been, has been excavated. It's a bit more off the beaten path, uh, to get there, but it's well worth, uh, well worth a visit if it's open. Now, one other aspect about these questions about tradition. Um, sometimes we have good written records of, uh, of tradition. Um, whether that's something like Jerome or Eusebius or other uh, Christian authors who visited the land and found out these locations. Um, even though sometimes we have these Christian traditions which talk about these traditional sites, uh, we also need to understand that some of them grow up only in the Christian period. So, for instance, it's in this time that, of course, Nazareth becomes a an important tourist destination in the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries AD. And it's also a time when Mount Tabor becomes associated with the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it's actually very close to Nazareth. And so perhaps that's one of the reasons why it becomes the likely traditional spot. And wouldn't you know it, uh, a site called Kafar Kana, um, becomes associated with Cana. And so a pilgrim could visit these different places within the span of, of, of one day and, and offer prayers at each one of these sites. Some of them are legitimate, like, like Nazareth. Uh, others are, uh, less so. But what's, what Kyle is pointing out is in the excavations of Ken Dark is we do have some traditional evidence about this location, but we actually have archaeological evidence of a first century home with later Byzantine activity there, which seems to support the idea that even though we don't have a lot of Christian tradition and written record, that they were actually uh, venerating this earlier these earlier remains, which go back to the time of Jesus. And it's exactly the same argument that is used at Capernaum. So if you've seen Capernaum and visited the site, perhaps you've visited the, the synagogue, the wonderful white fourth uh, century synagogue that's there with the earlier first century one below it. And then if you walk across, you visit what I like to call the Millennium Falcon Church. Yeah, the spaceship, um, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a spaceship kind of hovering over these earlier remains. 
Um, but in the core of that, you have a first century insula style home that has churches literally built on top of it, radiating from the fourth century down through the, the sixth or seventh centuries AD, showing the veneration of a particular ruin, which is why scholars have identified it with the home of Simon Peter's mother-in-law, which is, plays a, a main role in um, the, the, the Synoptic Gospels, especially if we think of something like Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 2. So that's the kind of argument that's being made here, and I think it makes, it makes, I think it makes good sense when we think about Nazareth. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, and I yeah, I think you you hit the um the the key point here is that the it's really the archaeology that is informing us about the the tradition in a greater way than sometimes our textual sources do in other traditions um because we don't have, you know, a smoking gun. There's no inst- you know graffiti chiseled in the rock, you know, from a young Jesus that says I was here. Um but we do have the archaeology and, and a continuous um um occupation or continuous expression that hey this place is uh, is different for some reason than than some other places that have been excavated in Nazareth. Now one thing I want to point out with um, Nazareth is that at least in some of the excavation areas in the kind of international um, Mary of Nazareth Center they didn't excavate any imported or luxury vessels. And one of the things that we have to, to keep in mind here, and this goes back, again, we talked a little bit about this with Andrew Berlin, is that there is a real border, so to speak, between Jews and Gentiles, Greco-Roman occupants in Galilee, in, in many spheres. And so many Jewish settlements just aren't interacting with the local um neighborhood sites and they're they're not they're not using the material from there they're creating their own pottery they've got their own vessels and it seems that nazareth falls into this category based on the the dearth of any kind of imported um, material that we have there so it seems to be that this is a good jewish settlement in the first century a.d and when you actually go outside the settlement itself and start to look in the countryside, I think it's really significant. And this again is, this is drawing on the work of Ken Dark. He actually did this and surveyed. And when you compare and contrast Sepphoris with Nazareth, Nazareth, when we look at the material culture, the distribution of types of, of materials, the presence of what we could call, consider ethnic markers of, of Jewishness, it's completely different from Sepphoris. So Sepphoris has lots of different types of material culture. It has some Jewish, it has some local, it has some imported. Nazareth, not so much. The distribution of material in Sepphoris and around Sepphoris, even in the countryside, is, is spread out. Whereas in Nazareth, it, it seems to be localized in the settlement itself. If you look at Sepphoris, you've got some stone vessels, you've got some mikvah oat, but you also have lots of Greek elements, and we could call this a clearly urban site. Whereas in Nazareth, you don't have Greek uh, material. You've got stone vessels, you've got uh, distinctly Jewish material, and it seems that the, the site is focused on agriculture and quarrying, which again, we come back to the whole identification of, of Joseph as a, as a tecton. Is he a carpenter? Is he a quarrier, uh, a quarryman? Well, no. The, the term can refer to, you know, a craftsman in general, but 
looking at the archaeology of Nazareth and the fact that there are a number of known quarries there, it might be that he was actually quarrying stone. It doesn't mean that that's all he had to do, but it, it might be a better way to conceptualize what Joseph was. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I mean, we don't. The, the answer is we don't know. Like <laughs> we, we we don't we just have these passing references to. Uh, tecton and much can be made and much has been made and I think a lot of this stuff is more of a thought experiment than anything else and we have to always talk about what's likely and not likely and so I'm not saying we should uh, throw away our, our, our children's books that have uh, Joseph and, and, and Jesus making chairs in fact I really like if you remember back in the movie The Passion of the Christ I like when uh, Jesus makes a chair and sets it at the table and it's this funny scene where he takes it to his mother and she's like, what is this? He's like, oh, you'll get it later. Well, it's yeah. going to take on. Uh, that's, that's a, but that's aware of this kind of, of thinking. But Kyle's right. The, the main, you know, building material is, is stone. Um, and as we'll see, even the idea of, of the manger is almost certainly not, uh, the traditional depiction of a V-shaped stone manger or a V-shaped wooden manger, but most likely made from stone. And we have some of these. Um, at Megiddo and, and other places that were, were, were food troughs for, for animals. And so it's, it's, it's more likely that um, the building aspect of it is associated with, uh, with, with stone as a primary building material. And of course, you need wood to go along with it, but because stone is so prevalent, it's a, it's a key part. The problem is, is, is this domestic building is it commercial building? And it's it's so tempting to imagine, you know, in the teenage years of, of Jesus at Nazareth, as the site of Sepphoris is destroyed and being rebuilt till the year 19 AD by Herod Antipas, the son of, uh, of Herod the Great. You know, I've heard many a, a tour guide say, and I may have said it myself, isn't it interesting to think of you know, Joseph and his uh, apprentice, uh, Tecton, moving back and forth, making that two-hour walk between Sepphoris and Nazareth. And it's, and it's a possibility, but we, we can't say with, uh, we can't say with, with certainty. One other point I, I'd, I'd like to, to draw attention to is, um, well, I should say two things. That, that also informs potentially what Joseph might be doing in Bethlehem. Um, and in the area of Jerusalem, if he is, as has been suggested, uh, a kind of um, a worker of stone, a stonemason, as it's sometimes called, we should remember that there's all kinds of building projects happening in the vicinity of Bethlehem when we think of uh, Herod the Great's ongoing building project of the temple, his palace, major aqueduct projects in the vicinity of Herodian, all of which would have been at Bethlehem's, um, in Bethlehem's backyard. But one other point before we uh, move from Nazareth, I'd actually add in a third town here, and it's one that's not usually thought about that is kind of in between Sepphoris and Nazareth, uh, both in terms of geography and also in terms of the type of culture that is there, and that is the site of Kirbet Kana. Uh, this is the most likely site of, of, of Cana, the site that's mentioned in John's Gospels a couple of times. Uh, of course, it's the famous scene where we have Jesus turning water into wine. And there you have a site that wasn't occupied in later periods. You have a site that was, I believe, founded sometime in the Hellenistic period and was was uh, constructed and, and lived in, in the early Roman period, withstood the destruction of 
uh, in 70 AD and was slightly reoccupied after that. There, it's a, it's a much larger site than the site of Nazareth. It seems to be have much more prestige, but not to the same level or the same identification, as you might say, of the more elites that lived at Sepphoris. And so if we're, if we're adding these different villages, and we could point to Yodfat, which is, you know, just to the west of that, where Josephus would later, um, give up his arms to the Romans and, uh, become the court historian, essentially, of, of, of Titus and, and Vespasian. Um, that's another village that's just in this vicinity. And there's all kinds of these Jewish villages that have varying degrees of connection with the Roman Empire um, that that are that are well worth uh, visiting and knowing about in this vicinity. Yeah, so that's a good point, and that actually kind of plays into just the last comment I'll make about Nazareth and what I was kind of building to with the whole distinction between Sepphoris and, and Nazareth. And this is something that Ken Dark, I think, you know, raises this really significant and interesting point that you know one of the traditions that's out there that was kind of that started uh, amongst competing Jewish circles was that Jesus, you know, obviously wasn't wasn't the Messiah for all Jews. And then in fact, this whole narrative about, you know, that we have preserved in the Gospels is is made up and you have Talmudic sources that say he was actually just um, the bastard child of a Roman soldier who did some unfortunate things to Mary. And you know, so the, you, it's just this short passage um, in in some later Jewish sources, but the the question has always been, well, you know, where does where does this come from? Is there any any credence to this, or is it is it simply you know, trying to minimize uh, the New Testament writings that were already spreading at the time? And what Dark says is that when you compare the countryside of Nazareth and Sepphoris, really there's no indication that you have any Roman presence in Nazareth at all, or even right around the village. And so it's very unlikely that you're going to have any kind of Roman military presence there. They, if anything, they'd be in Sepphoris, but they're not wandering over to, to Nazareth for any reason. And so I th- you know, when we think about traditions and again, how we interpret the, the text, I think this is an important one that is can have some light shed on it by what we're finding in the archaeology. Yeah, I think that's that's a really fascinating um, point that Ken makes that you've brought out. And I mean, the, the fact is, we'll never know how all of it worked, and it's, certainly it changed at different points of time. But the reality is, too, that we have actually a lot of data to compare it to. We have um, the archaeology, which is ever-increasing. You know, one other point we could make is Jonathan Adler of Ariel University, just to the north of Nazareth, has exposed a massive uh, stone vessel complex where they were actually producing Jewish ritual stone vessels, which is another sign that this is a site that is not only uh, Jewish, but is directly associated with, with, with Jewish signs of ethnicity and religion. And we have, again, Josephus telling us in some places where actually Roman soldiers are settled. So one of the, the key places where you would have Roman soldiers is at Geba uh, Susita, or Geba, uh, I should say, Geba of the, of the Calvary, Geba, Geba Hippas, it's called. Um, and that's next to, next to Megiddo, where there's going to be major battles that happen later on in the story. And so as Kyle indicates, there's no real indication that there was a lot of contact between Roman soldiers uh, and the Roman establishment and a small site like uh, like Nazareth uh, that likely would have been mediated through other means such as tax collectors um, rather than uh, rather than within the town itself. 
Well, if we if we jump to the south and we we turn to Bethlehem here for a little bit, um, you know, the, it's similar in, to Nazareth in the in this regard that you have a modern city uh, obscuring um, any kind of potential archaeological remains, and it's only through. Uh, salvage excavations, or in some case, some previous excavations before an area was built up, that we that we have a good sense, or it's by by digging outside the the modern city of Bethlehem itself. And one of the really interesting things about Bethlehem is that this is a region uh, that has a material culture that goes back at least to the, the Stone Age into the the early Bronze Age, and then when we get to the Middle Bronze Age, right? So we're talking about 2000 to about 1550 BC. You have a, a pretty extensive cemetery just southeast of of the region, uh, sorry, the heartland of Bethlehem, the manger square, the Church of the Nativity. You have a big cemetery from the Middle Bronze Age that covers you know, about seven, seven and a half acres of space. And so it's a pretty substantial cemetery. And one of the things that we need to think about with Bethlehem is, is, is this site actually more important than the text would lead us to believe? Because when you go through the biblical text, right, we, we know it's the hometown of David. We know it's the birthplace of Jesus. Outside of that, we don't have a whole lot of references to Bethlehem in, in the Hebrew Bible. And there's actually a couple different Bethlehems, actually. There's, um, potentially there's one in the region of Benjamin. And the picture we get, textually speaking, just doesn't, doesn't tell us a whole lot of, about the site. And when we couple that with the presence of the modern city, there, it's really difficult to reconstruct what Bethlehem in the days of Jesus looked like, even what Bethlehem looked like in the days of David when he was there. But I think it's fascinating that you have this large Middle Bronze Age cemetery that really Bethlehem is not exactly midway between Jerusalem and Hebron, but it's it's closer to Jerusalem. But it could be that we're looking at another really significant area in the hill country from a very early time period, so that Bethlehem is already known as a significant site by the time we get to David, especially then by the time we get to to Jesus, even if that significance has faded and largely been forgotten in the latter instance. Yeah, I think I think that when we think of Bethlehem, um, it's one of those sites that is so well known in, uh, as far as its name goes, but so underwhelming um, and underknown, if that's a word, not as well known as as Jerusalem and other sites. I mean, it's 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 on the list of things that people want to do when they visit the Holy Land, um, Bethlehem. It's it, it's of crucial importance, but the site itself uh, is uh, pretty small. And, and today it's a, it's a large uh, it's a it's a large city. It's a large Palestinian city just inside the the West Bank, as as one uh, as one leaves Jerusalem. Um, but in ancient times, it was not much to uh, to really see. In fact, um, as as Kyle pointed out, the excavations is very similar story to what we uh, some living archaeology at at uh, Bethlehem. When one visits the the Church of the Nativity, you're actually visiting the confines of one of the oldest standing churches in uh, in the land. I mean, it was one of the three churches built by uh, Helena, mother of Constantine, the Church of the Ascension and the Church of the Holy Sepulcher being the other. It was rebuilt in the in the sixth century. And the this, this site that you visit today is basically that church because it wasn't destroyed 
uh, in the Muslim conquest, uh, first the, the Persian and the Muslim conquest of the uh, of the seventh century, and so you actually have archaeology right there. And, and recently, the uh, the new um, the, the new restorations of the site have made it even more beautiful. As you can see, some of the uh, the frescoes on the wall, and the mosaics on the wall that were put there in the Crusader period, and so it's not to say that there's not archaeology. It's just later uh, later materials. Uh, you can even visit uh, uh, Jerome's uh, Jerome's Grotto, where tradition tells us he he um, translated the Old and New Testament from original Hebrew and Greek into Latin. And we we have the Vulgate, which until today remains uh, the most the most uh, well-known <laughs> translation in history. So there's much to be said about the archaeology of Bethlehem, and yet the stuff that we're the most interested in, uh, as we think about the the Bible, would be the Iron Age. You know, the time of of King David and the time of the Judahite Kingdom, and of course the early Roman period. And all we can really say is based upon various soundings that the tell of of Bethlehem a site that has never lost its name, you know, from antiquity till today, it's still called Bethlehem, um, is that essentially the church of the nativity sits right in the middle of the tell, that there's a, a garden which is to, to the east behind the church, and using various aerial images, you can see the, the shape of the, the tell, which would essentially on its west side probably end uh, right in the middle of, of Manger Square, where you see the Church of the Nativity. Um, but in terms of how much settlement is there, what that settlement looks like, we're left with uh, a lot of question marks uh, about what the nature of that settlement was. Now, surveys have shown that the site was occupied in the 11th century, in the 10th century, and then on down through the 6th centuries BC. So it fits with the, the Old Testament um, history of the site. And it was also occupied in the uh, in the early Roman period, which is the time where we have um, where we have where we have the story of Jesus. But what exactly the site was uh, is hard to know uh, because the excavations are have you can't really excavate it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, I mean, the the evidence we have comes from tombs, rather just outside or by happenstance in the midst of the modern city of of Bethlehem, and we have. Uh, a lot of burial tombs. So this is where we're reconstructing the history. Architecture, as you mentioned, yeah, is very, very minimal. There was a claim uh, that back in, uh, I don't know the specific time period, but early the Franciscans did an excavation in Manger Square and uncovered some sort of massive structure that could perhaps, I think, was potentially interpreted as the fortifications of Bethlehem and ascribed to the, the the days of Rehoboam, as we, we have from Second Chronicles 11, where it talks about Rehoboam fortifying a bunch of cities in Judah. Now, the surrounding evidence probably indicates that, no, nah, this is probably a much later, even Byzantine period thing, but again, nothing has been published about it. We don't have uh, the records there. And so we do have a bit of a gap here. But we, that doesn't mean we can't understand the significance of, of Bethlehem, particularly from uh, the New Testament author's understanding, and also even perhaps from a theological understanding, because when you're at Bethlehem, and you look to the the kind of north, almost due north, slightly to the east, you'll see, well, you won't see Jerusalem, but you'll see the region of Jerusalem. But if you turn and look to the southeast, you'll see this 
massive structure that is looming over the Judean wilderness, and that is the Herodian. This is one of these sites that Herod built. It ultimately is the site where he is buried, and they discovered the remains of his tomb a, a number of years back. And it's it's so interesting that here is this town known in kind of a storied place in Israel's history in the shadow of this Herodian, um, or I should say this, this Greco-Roman dynast who built from from scratch this Herodian fortress and it's a it's a conflict between again what is the real expression of power and what is kind of God's expect, expression of power and you see the, the the stark contrast between the world of the Greco-Roman period the mindset of so many people and how perhaps God wants people through the you know, the way the New Testament tells it to be to be thinking of things. And here's Jesus born into not even necessarily a structure, but um, one of these kind of caves. That perhaps even you know not to say that it ever was would have been used as a tomb, but the whole region of of Bethlehem, because of the nature of the limestone, has a lot of of caves, a lot of open areas, and it's also well known for being agriculturally productive. You can grow a lot of wheat in the area, so it makes sense that you have lots of shepherds there. They can uh, tend their flocks, they can keep them safe in some of these these caves, and this is really what should be framing our our visual imagery as we start to think about Jesus being born uh, to Joseph and Mary there. I think that is one of the most important insights that one can gather about one of the most important stories in the Bible that is really only revealed through archaeology and geography. The site of Herodian is not mentioned a single time in the New Testament. Josephus makes a number of allusions to it. But uh, I, and of course, anytime you visit Herodian, which is almost always when you visit the land, you can clearly see that this is a dominant landscape feature of Bethlehem, and it informs precisely this story in uh, Luke chapter 2 and in Matthew chapter 2. You have to forgive my, my nerdy background, but I always envision it as kind of like the eye of Sauron, you know, the <laughs> the Dolgoldor <laughs> tower that's that's, that's looking like over yeah. that's looking over towards uh towards Bethlehem. And in some ways it's a it's a good place to visualize and think about, you know, what the Magi experienced and what Herod um experienced and did um in killing the infants at uh, at Bethlehem is that uh and Josephus very clearly uh tells us that he was a very jealous, murderous king who had the full weight and power of the Roman um, military uh, supporting him. And so to have such a site like Herodian dotting the landscape, not just dotting the landscape, it's a its a volcano of power and Roman uh, influence that sits right across from Bethlehem, which is a shepherding slash agricultural village. I mean, we could think of the Book of Ruth. I mean, it's the same uh, it's, it's a, you know, a, a, the type of place you would visit throughout Judah, throughout Samaria, uh, a place that is very common. Uh, whereas here's this imperial Roman slash Idumean slash Jewish character of Herod the Great, who's building this monument to himself at the only place he, he really won a, a military victory. Uh, in fact, there's a lot that goes into that, but 
apparently the reason why he chose that place is because his mother fell off of um, the the wagon and almost died. And he thought she was dead. And Josephus tells us he was about to kill himself until he realized she wasn't dead and they won the battle. So he builds this trophy for himself and he did an amazing job. Um, and even, even if we bookend this, I mean, if we think about the birth of the king of the Jews uh, in Matthew's language, the birth of Jesus, uh, compared and contrasted with, he says he's the king of the Jews, I'm the king of the Jews, Herod. Um, even with that, you can bookend it with the end of the story. Um, and I, I still get chills thinking about this when I was a student and you would climb up on the backside of the Mount of Olives and as you approach Jerusalem, uh, Jesus, in, in the beginning of Passion Week, we have it being said that, um, you know, uh, Hosanna, save now, you know, that you are the king, you know, welcome to the welcome to Jerusalem, king, uh, king, you know, son of David. And I just wonder, I mean, <laughs> had Jesus looked off, it's kind of one of those things that you just wonder, you don't can ever prove, but had he looked off to the left, he would have seen the the still existing, still magnificent, tower, volcano uh, looking uh, monument of Herod the Great, still with its mausoleum of now the dead king of the Jews, Herod, uh, still dotting the landscape, which was actually the point of why Herod put it there, so that you could see Herodium from Jerusalem. You could even perhaps see his glittering tomb elevated um, in the distance from Jerusalem. And so you have, once again, the geography helping us understand the psychology, the background of these two very different kings of, uh, of the Jews. Um, and again, if we think, if we go back to Luke 2 and the announcement of the angels, I mean, <laughs> those are right there beside the Herodian, which would have been stationed with, with Roman, Roman soldiers. And so it's comparing and contrasting throughout this narrative. It assumes that you know uh, some of these things that for, 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 for us as 21st century readers, we're, we're missing because, of course, we weren't living then. And, and Luke or Matthew, as great a storytellers as they are, they don't spell out everything for us, which to me is exciting because as an archaeologist, as someone interested in these things, we have the um, uh, advantage of being able to try and dig out where these things actually line up. Yeah, good stuff. Well, Chris, I'm wondering if... We want to stop our conversation at this point because we still have a lot to say about um, the Church of the Nativity, only not in, including some about the archaeology of, of some of the excavations that were done there. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the tomb with all the, the baby bones in it. If you go there, you'll get to see a... Um, a crypt that has a ton of bones that the local priests will tell you are the infant bones. We can talk about that. Um, but then we, ha we have so much more to talk about. But I'm, I think maybe now would be a good time to, to break, and then we'll, we'll start part two next time. We'll keep people a bit waiting, right? Building the suspense. What's going what's gonna to happen? Yeah, I like it. Build, build the suspense. Will Jesus yeah. <laughs> be born this time? Uh, uh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And I would say, you, you give him a teaser. I'll give a teaser. Um, was... Joseph actually from Nazareth? Was he even from there at all? You know, and we're going to have to deal with this question of what does it mean that, um, that each went to his own town to be registered? What did it mean that, that Joseph of Nazareth, uh, that, that Joseph went to Bethlehem? And these are the types of questions that, um, are so embedded 
in the way we tell the story um, that when you look a little bit closer, there's a couple different options we can take. And so we'll, we'll deal with that. We'll deal with some more of the archaeology and we'll deal also with these really interpretive questions kind of that have grown up around the text in terms of tradition uh, on our next, on our next episode. Thank you for joining us and we'll, we'll cover next time the archaeology of Christmas part two. You've been listening to On Script's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging. <laughs>